prayer. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and bless the reading of your word. Enlighten our hearts and our minds to understand the things that are in it, Lord. We ask that you would help us to rightly apply the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to our lives. We pray for his glory. Amen. Well, it's a a joy for me to be here with you this evening. And the question that we are looking at this evening is a question that we all wrestle with one way or another. It's a question that just about every human being will ask. It's a question that even people who are not of faith will have towards the end of their life. There were a couple of different research studies done, one in 2015 by Pew Research, and one done in 2016 by uh, three different universities out on the West Coast. And they were looking at what or do Americans believe in an afterlife? And in both studies, they found almost remarkably the same thing, that about 80% of Americans believe in the afterlife. Of course, that number is higher among uh, Americans who would consider themselves um, religious. But the number was also surprisingly high, even of Americans who wouldn't consider themselves very religious. So if there truly is an afterlife, or if we believe that there is one, then how do we get there? Our question uh, is, and in our text, is who can be saved? And our passage today not only gives us the answer to the question of who can be saved, but also presents to us a major obstacle that gets in the way of salvation. I have a good friend who's going through a really rough battle with cancer. It's a scary thing. She's, she's my age. She has kids the same age as my kids. And one day, everything's normal and fine. And all of a sudden, she starts to notice some discomfort, but nothing alarming. So she goes to the doctor and gets life-shattering news that she has stage four cancer. This disease that has been growing inside of her, and she's completely unaware, unaware that it's there, starting to take over her body, and also completely unaware of how it has spread through her body. And I believe that there is a spiritual cancer that all of us, especially in the Western world, wrestle with. The cancer of consumerism, of materialism. Growing up in our culture, I don't even think sometimes we realize how deeply it impacts our life and our faith. I don't even think we're aware of how fast it can spread in our soul. And it impacts everything that we do, and sometimes we don't even know that it's there. It's what causes us to think of of ourselves better than others. It can manifest itself in the hunger for power and money that can cause humans to to view one another as a transaction, a simple exchange, 
and a culture that promotes hooking up or two people using one another for a transaction. Or it can show itself in those who have so much, those who have so much power to take advantage of those who have so little. Consumerism, materialism impacts how we think about our faith in Jesus. It can be easy to see our relationship with Jesus as a simple transaction. Jesus, I believe in you, and now I get eternal life. Thank you. Now I'm going to go live my life how I want. But as we'll see in our passage, salvation is more than just a simple transaction. And consumerism should be on the radar of every Christian. Something, if left untreated, can cause great harm to our life with Christ. But the good news of our passage today is that Jesus has a cure to this disease. And we see in the beginning of our passage that Jesus is on the way. Where is he going? He is on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on the way to the cross. And from Mark 8 on, we see a greater emphasis on discipleship and teachings on the kingdom of God. And in, our pa- in the passage immediately before the one that we read this evening, Jesus uses children as an example of those who can enter into his kingdom, who can enter the kingdom of God. He says to enter the kingdom of God, you must receive it as a child. What does he mean by that? You must fully receive it, be completely dependent on it. And then Mark moves us to our passage where we see a great obstacle to living life in the kingdom. And so let's look at how this obstacle became one for this rich man. We see in verse 17, it says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting to see the urgency behind this man's request. Right? It doesn't seem, we're not told that Jesus is in a big crowd or anything like that, but the man runs up to Jesus and falls down on his knees to ask Jesus this question. He calls him good teacher, which is actually a very unusual title. We don't see it anywhere else in Jewish thought or literature. It's the only place we see this title. And so we know that this man is showing some sort of respect for who Jesus is, that he is some, he's a different teacher than the others. And so the man asked Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question of who can be saved? How do we come into the kingdom of God? All these ideas are synonymous with one another. And of course, this man is rightly to be concerned for the life of his soul. And as Jesus likes to do, he answers the man's question with a question. In verse 18, Jesus says, Why do you call me good? There is no one good but God alone. Now this seems like an interesting response for Jesus to give. Why do you call me good? You know, there's none but good, there's no one good but God alone. Certainly Jesus is not denying his own divinity. But what he's doing is making a rhetorical point. Yes, you are correct to call me good teacher, because I am God. 
And so what does Jesus tell him? He recites the second part of the Ten Commandments, or what we may call the second table of the Ten Commandments. All these commandments that have to do with loving our neighbor. The man responds to Jesus, Jesus, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Probably referring to since, since the age of 13, when he would have been bar mitzvah and brought and be considered a man in the Jewish culture. And I don't think we should read anything into his response, that he's kept all of these commandments, right? As if any one person could truly keep all the commandments. But with sincerity, he's answering, yes, Jesus, I've, I've kept, I've done these. I've tried my best to do these. And we see Jesus doesn't correct him on this. But what does it say? It says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. The man was probably a great neighbor, and he probably cared for a lot of people. He cared for others. And on the surface, he would have been someone we would have loved to have had in our community. Right? And this may sting a little bit, but he had money. He cared about people. It's someone we would have put right here in the front pew. But he didn't have everything. And so Jesus looks at him and he says... You lack one thing. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will then have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, when we read that, it's easy just to kind of read through that, but can you imagine Jesus Christ looking at you and telling you, go sell everything you have? Sell your house, sell your car, give away your 401k, and come follow me. This is not a little ask. This is a big ask. And then we see one of, what I think is one of the saddest verses in Scripture. It says, at this the man's face fell, as you can imagine. And he went away sad, because he had great wealth. And we see that right in front of this man was the living Lord. Was Jesus Christ offering to him. And it says that he looked at him and he loved him. And with sincerity he was offering to him the gift of salvation. But the text says he walked away from the gift of eternal life. He loved what he had more than he loved Jesus. This passage reminds me of uh, <clears throat> a student that I had when I was first starting out in ministry. When I was up at, at when I was in seminary at Gordon Conwell, I had the opportunity to work with a church plant, and part of my responsibilities with that church plant was taking care of the youth group. And we had uh, a group of about ten students or so. And every week we would get together, we would have like a midweek Bible study on a Wednesday, and then every Sunday we would get together after church, we would go on retreats together, do all these things. And they were a great group, and there was this one girl in that group named Jen. And Jen was, uh, she, she was so much fun, she was sweet, she, she came to everything, she asked questions with sincerity, she wanted to be there, but even after a conversation of conversation, retreat after retreat, every time I, say, I asked her multiple times, Jen, why won't you put your faith in Jesus? 
and a very mature response for a high school girl is because she didn't want to give up her life. She understood that answering the call to follow Jesus meant that she required something of her, and at this point in her life, she was not willing to let that go. The call of Jesus to follow him asks something of us. And so we see three different times after this episode, in verse 23, 24, and 25, Jesus mentions how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And these three verses ought to make us also take a look deep into our souls. How often do we put convenience over following Jesus? How often do we put our our stature, our position over our relationship to the living Lord. What are the obstacles in your life that keep you from giving your whole heart to him? And to be clear, I don't think Jesus is saying that it's sinful to have wealth. I don't believe that Jesus is saying this is something that all people should do to sell all they have. I believe that Jesus is is addressing this one man? What is keeping this man from eternal life? There are many examples in scriptures of, of people who, have, who had wealth and were praised for it. Um, we know that some of the disciples, while they certainly weren't wealthy, they still had their homes and the tools of their livelihood. We see the, the uh, disciples going back to fishing, meaning they probably still had their boats and things like that. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea in Mark 15 is a man's of great, was a man of great means and a follower of Jesus. Luke talks about a prominent woman who supported Jesus' ministry from her own means in Luke 8. And after the conversion of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, it says that he only sold half of all that he had, but yet Jesus had still said that salvation had come to his house. In the book of Acts, we see in Acts chapter 4 and 5 about wealthy members of the church who were helping to take care of the church. However, if we are breathing a sigh of relief at all these examples, that Jesus may not be asking me personally to give up all that I have, then I believe that this passage is talking to you. Or to us, I should say. It should make us all a little uncomfortable. Growing up, one of my favorite shows to watch was The Simpsons. And there was this one episode where Homer was at work, he's in the factory, and he goes up to this vending machine, and he goes to get money out of his pocket, and sure enough, Homer has no money in his pockets. And so he decides, as only Homer can do, that he's going to stick it to the man, or to Mr. Burns. And so what does Homer do? He reaches his hand up into the vending machine to get, to get a drink. And of course, so he reaches and reaches and stretches and stretches, he grabs his soda, and then he tries to pull his hand out, and he's stuck. He cannot get his arm out. And so later scenes, you see Homer walking around, dragging this vending machine around with him everywhere that he goes, because his hand is stuck. Eventually, he rests next to this other vending machine that had snacks. <laughs> Certainly, Homer was hungry from his journey with the vending machine. So what does he do? He reaches his other hand, his free hand, into that vending machine, and sure enough, now Homer has one hand stuck in each vending machine. And through the miracle of cartoons, somehow, with no hands, he calls Marge. Um, and so, um, 
the next scene, we see that there, these people show up and they're trying to get Homer out. And they've resulted to the point where this guy has the circular saw and he's about to cut Homer's arm off uh, to get his arm out of the vending machine. It seems like a, a good solution, right? And all of a sudden, the guy who's looking at the soda machine says, Homer, are you holding on to that can of soda? And Homer says, yeah, what's the big deal? Right? And sometimes we hold on, like Homer, so tightly to the thing that is keeping us stuck. Right? We love it so much that we don't want to let go. And that can easily happen with our wealth and our possessions. We hold on to them so tightly. And even though they are keeping us spiritually stuck, we won't let go. When all we have to do is let go, hold it loosely, and we can be free. How tightly do we put our security and our earthly wealth and possessions? Our passage today is telling us that we need to hold on to these things loosely. When asked uh, what the greatest commandments were, Jesus said to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the rich man in our passage appears to have loved his neighbors well. But he loved his riches more than God. What was the one thing he lacked? True love for God. The first part of the commandments. The man's wealth, materialism, kept him from following Jesus. And perhaps the greatest parallel for us to be, um, we had a great example of this in Nancy's, what if Jesus was calling you to the missions field? To give up all you have and to go. Would you go? And this is something that I wrestle with all the time when I pray. One of the regular prayers of my life, in my life is, Lord, show me what I am holding on to tighter than you. Would I be willing to give up my job, my car, the access to education my kids have, family and friends, if I felt Jesus was calling me to go somewhere? That would mean I would have less means, less friendships, and be uncomfortable. It's a gut-wrenching question. And many times, if I'm honest, I would say the answer is no. When we read this, we ought to have the same shock as the disciples. Lord, then who can be saved? Toward the end of the passage, they want to make sure, and I love Peter's explanation, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. Peter wanted to make sure that they had done enough, right? That they could inherit eternal life. But what does Jesus say before that? He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The only way that we can do this is through the work of Christ in our lives. We can't earn it. We can't be good enough. It is completely dependent on the work of Christ in our lives and our ability to trust him with them, with everything that we have. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So who can be saved? It is those who follow the way of Jesus. Those who respond to his call to follow him, to trust him. See, that was what he told the rich man to do. He said, give all you have and come follow me. What does it mean to follow him? 
Following Jesus' discipleship is learning to live the life of the kingdom of God. And we see that being a Christian is more, this, more than just a transaction of salvation, but it is an invitation to follow the way of Jesus, to live as a member of his kingdom. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than he talks about anything else in all of Scripture. Jesus was all about the kingdom of God. He says that he brought it in when he came to earth and that he will bring it again in full when he returns. But in the meantime, consumerism has, I believe, has bled into the way we think about and practice our faith. We tend to want faith on our terms, and we certainly don't like it when anyone challenges us that we are not doing enough. And we have let the idea of a personal decision to follow Jesus become different from what discipleship is. We talk about conversion and discipleship as if they are two different things, but Jesus never talks about them in this way. Jesus talks about the life of the kingdom, that to believe in him is to be part of his kingdom. Jesus tells his disciples to what? Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. He doesn't, tell people, he doesn't tell them to go out to make a one-time and ask people to make a one-time decision for Jesus, but to invite them into a life of discipleship, to live as a citizen of his kingdom. And Paul picks up on this idea in Philippians 3. He says, join together in following my example. Why? Because Paul was following the example of Jesus. He says, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do, as those who live the life of Christ. For as I have often told you before and tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Following Jesus is not about a form of legalism, but of love. Jesus tells his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. It is love that compelled Jesus to the cross, and it should be love that compels us to follow him. Love for Jesus is shown in our loyalty to him. It's about loving him more than we love anything else in this life. This is what the rich man lacked. Following him is about love for him. And when we become a citizen of his kingdom, it's just like become, it's similar to becoming a citizen of another country. If you were to become a citizen of the U.S., one of the things you do is pledge support and allegiance to the Constitution. And when we come into the kingdom of God, we swear of an oath of allegiance to follow the way of Jesus Christ. Life in the kingdom is the exact opposite of consumerism. It's not about how much I have or what I can build myself, but it's about how much I can give away, how much I can serve others rather than be served. Life in the kingdom is about living out the Sermon on the Mount. 
when Jesus tells us that blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted because of righteousness. He calls us that you are to live as salt and light, to not be angry with your brothers, but to be reconciled, not to lust, but to love. This is what it means to follow the way of Jesus, to live life in the kingdom. And believe it or not, discipleship is not about making our lives miserable. Discipleship at its heart is about joy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his work, The Cost of Discipleship, defined it simply as joy. Joy should be at the heart of every disciple. In Romans, the Apostle, the Apostle Paul instructs the believers, saying, The kingdom of God is full of righteousness, peace, joy, and the Holy Spirit. N.T. Wright describes discipleship as a, by allowing ourselves to be grasped afresh day by day by the compelling love of Jesus. Becoming a disciple is about experiencing true joy in this life. Remember from Hebrews that it was the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross. It wasn't that he enjoyed, that was joyful to be on the cross, but it was the joy set before him. Life in the kingdom with his father and his people that he endured the cross. And it is for the joy that is set before us in following him that we can endure the difficult things. Because they pale in comparison to the joy of knowing our Lord and Savior and being found in his kingdom. But I think sometimes we are afraid to hold loosely the things that we have. Because at some level, we think the things that we have will bring us more joy than following the way of Jesus. Does following Jesus bring you more joy than your car, your career, your education, your 401k, your remodeled kitchen? Are you ready to give them away if Jesus asks? Sometimes my kids are afraid to try new things. They love the security of what they know and what is comfortable. And as a parent, sometimes I have to push them to try new things. Um, mostly those things that I know that they will love. And I encourage them, just trust me, trust me, you're going to love this. Now, sometimes that goes poorly. Um, but for the sake of example, I won't give you a time when that went poorly. Uh, so last summer, we, uh, uh, I'm from Virginia Beach, so we went uh, down to Virginia to spend some time with my, um, uh, our, our, my parents. And we went to this water park, and it was a water park I went to growing up and loved, and so it was a lot of fun for me to take my kids there. And so when we got there, we spent, we, you know, the kids wanted to go straight to the, like, the little kids area where it was safe. And so I kept trying to encourage my oldest son, Levi. I'm like, Levi, let's go on one of those big slides together. And he wasn't having it. He was like, no, no. I was like, come on, trust me, trust me, trust me. This is going to be so much fun. And so eventually he says, Okay. And so we go grab one of those two-person uh, inner tubes, and we make our way up to the big, up the big ladder to get up to the stairway to get up to the top of this massive water ride. 
And so he's reluctant the whole way up, and he wants to make sure that we're going to go to which one he feels looks the safest. And so we get in the tube, we sit down, and just waiting for that fateful moment when the lifeguard is going to kick us the back of our tube, and we shoot down the slide. So sure enough, it's our turn. We get our push, and we go shooting down the slide. We start flinging it from side to side in this big tube. Um, and we were spinning around, and I'm like, oh gosh, please don't cry, please don't cry, please don't cry. And then all of a sudden, I hear this burst of laughter and joy. And he's just, he just loving every minute of it the whole way down the ride. And then, of course, after that, that is all he wanted to do at the park, was to ride the big water slides. Sometimes following the way of Jesus can be scary. We don't know what we may be asked to give up. We don't know where it will lead us. We don't know how fast it will go. But we know that we can trust Jesus. And we know that he is in the tube with us. And when we trust him and allow him to lead us, we will experience incredible joy in this life. Following Jesus is about joy. And joy ought to be at the heart of every disciple. Because when Jesus is our greatest joy, it frees us to hold the things of this world loosely. Discipleship is about choosing Jesus every day. To make, to make the decision to take up our cross and follow him, as we were told in Mark 8. Which means that we are to put to death the things that keep us from him our sin, our consumerism, our materialism, and choose to follow Jesus, to live a life of obedience, generosity, and joy. So who can inherit eternal life? Who can be saved? It is those who follow the way of the cross, those who follow Jesus, those who respond to his call to follow him. Let's pray.